Welcome back, everybody. This is Dawn Tree, and you're listening to Atypical Parenting, the podcast for people who love someone with autism. We are beyond lucky today because we have Dr. Pada with us. He is a board-certified pain management specialist practicing in St. Louis, but he's also so much more than that. He's trained in anesthesiology, and he started out as a pediatric anesthesiologist. And we are going to talk today about pain and autism and how those two things interrelate. So welcome so much, Dr. Pada. Thank you. I appreciate it. Do you want to tell me just a little bit about yourself? Yeah. So essentially, I went to medical school in Kansas City. I went through a surgical residency and changed over to anesthesia, then did peds anesthesia. So I had a lot of exposure to little kids and was working on that end of the world. Did a lot of stuff on autistic kids and also managed a lot of the pediatric pain. So eventually, I ended up getting board certified, not just in anesthesia, but also in interventional pain. But as I progressed through my interventional pains world, commonalities started to bump into each other. And I tried to figure out how is it that, you know, we would do treatments for people and things would come back. And so eventually, I ended up getting additionally certified in metabolic health and understanding a little bit about metabolic inflammation and going down that whole road. And at the same time, I also am a perennial entrepreneur. So I ended up doing a lot of stuff in the business world. So I ended up with an MBA and have gone down both ends of the world. But what we're going to talk about right now is essentially autism and the autistic child and the autistic child's relationship to pain and for what parents need to understand, what caregivers need to understand. And how is it that they get there and what can we do to help them? There was an article published in Neuroscience News just in January of this year showing that people with autism experience pain at higher intensity. Do you think that's accurate? What do you think about that? Yeah, it's accurate. And we can base that off of several feedback loops. In rat models, we call it the rat tail flick test. In humans, we can call it a perceptive test and we can measure sympathetic outflow from pain. Now, those are experimental tests but they can be extrapolated to the general population. So even though a child may not be able to fully express their symptom, they have symptoms. And from the standpoint of understanding how this comes about, that's the key element. And so I look at things from a mechanistic standpoint. I really go back to why is it that patients have a particular thing? And so as an autistic child matures, their pain levels actually get substantively worse. And I'll kind of explain that in a couple of ways. But just with all children, when they're in utero, when they're inside the uterus, they're parasites. They're living off of the environment that they're in, and they're preferentially through the placenta sucking out the mother's nutrients. And they're getting essentially to the detriment of the mother they're getting all of the omega-3 fatty acids, they're getting all of the protein, they're getting all the amino acids, they're getting everything that they need, all the cholesterols they need as the building blocks for what they're creating for themselves, which is a, a small fetus. And they act as this incredible parasite that sucks all this up. And the mother willingly gives it up because that's how the placenta works. The syncytia allow the transfer of that material to the betterment of the parasite and to the worsening of the host. And so that's why if you have children back to back to back to back, the host typically has 
less and less and less nutrition. And so if you look at sequential children that are born close to each other, you'll notice that their jaw distances start to shrink. You'll notice that they're metabolically less healthy. You'll notice all sorts of complications associated with that. In this particular circumstance, the child comes out and is somewhere on the autistic spectrum. And then we can talk about what causes that autistic spectrum, but there's a lot of different potential causes. That's what careers are built on discussing. But let's say that we've now identified that the child has autism. Now things get a little bit more complicated because the thing is, we pretty much control what the child has initially, but the child is very hedonically driven just like everything else. It's a dopamine drive. Dopamine is the chemical compound that's released when we have a pleasurable event. And so when we eat something that we like, we get a dopamine release. When we do something that we like, we get a dopamine release. When we get an opiate, we get a dopamine release. All of these things are associated. And dopamine is really more than just, oh, I had a good thing here. Dopamine is the chemical that determines your drive. It tells you the learning that you're going to go through. So I look at dopamine not just as, oh, it's the pleasure concept. It's not just the neurotransmitter for pleasure. It's actually the neurotransmitter for reinforcement and education. So whatever you did causes you to get a dopamine release. And now your brain says, hey, that's a good thing. And I'm going to do more of that. So now we have this child who is limited in their capacity for doing some things, and they get more and more focused on the things that give them that dopamine drive. And it happens to be that it's mostly processed food. The majority of it becomes processed food. And unfortunately, the processed food companies inadvertently have created these hyper-addictive substances that are replete with omega-6 oil, replete with carbohydrates and all kinds of other processed stuff that triggers an addictive response in everyone, but specifically in this captured population. And now this poor population gets stuck. The only education it can really do is to constantly hit that dopamine drive. So you end up with a processed food addict and the processed food addiction that we've created in this child now is what the child's learned, and it causes severe metabolic inflammation. That's why a majority of autistic adults become diabetic. That's why they have severe metabolic inflammation. And when we see these patients, and we've studied them, we've done their metabolic profiles, 99.7% of them have severe metabolic derangement. They have elevated LPIR, they have high GGT, they have fatty liver, they have high sedimentation rates, and they develop a whole host of issues of metabolic inflammation, and they end up with type 2 diabetes. It is very true. In the practice, and I have a psychiatry practice, and when I have a new patient assessment, I'll ask, like, what is their diet like? And 99% of the time, it's chicken nuggets and plain pasta. Yeah, it's, it's because that's the thing that triggers the most amount of dopamine for that child, and the child has learned that, and the adult around them has also learned that. And now the adult is now a hostage, to the drive of the child, and they find it very hard to make that change. Unfortunately, now they're both on the same road, and now the child is completely addicted to something that causes severe metabolic inflammation, which now triggers a terrible pain response. 
And so that's why they're more sensitive. The higher your hemoglobin A1C goes, the more diabetic you get, the less efficient your endorphin system is, the less that works, and the higher mu agonists you need to activate. Now, it just so happens that carbohydrates are more addictive, probably, than crack cocaine. And so that's an issue. And then at the same time, we've done studies, and in rats, if you have an omega-3 fatty acid that goes rancid, rats don't like it because it smells like dead fish, and they actually stay away from it because they think that may not be good for me. Even though rats will eat trash, they won't eat rancid omega-3. But rats love rancid omega-6, which is vegetable oil, and that's the majority of the oils that these kids are getting. So when you measure their omega-6 to 3 fatty acid ratios, you'll find out that the omega check is very low and that 6 to 3 ratio is very high. So when you do your omega check, you'll find out, hold on, this kid has an omega check of 2.2 and it's supposed to be greater than 5.4. This kid, the only thing he's getting is this oxidized linoleic acid, this oxidized omega-6. And if you do an oxidized LDL, you'll find out that it's extremely high because it's that fast food that they never change the oil on. And I'm not discrediting all restaurants, but the majority of them don't really change the oil that frequently in their burners, in their fry cookers. And I used to own five restaurants. That's why I got out of the business because I was like, hold on, what am I doing here? And so that's the main issue. It's the dietary change over time that's causing an issue. Now, there is another issue. And so when we've talked about the dopamine structure. There is another issue that's inherent in autism. And it's the relationship with oxytocin, which is typically the bonding hormone. And that's typically we think of autistic kids as being unable to bond efficiently. And there's a relationship between the production of oxytocin and vasopressin. And they have a diminished capacity to release that. So there is a possibility that we could come up with some therapeutic in the future. One of the ones that comes to mind is MDMA to increase oxytocin in the brain. And so that's a possibility. But I think the more fundamental issue is the metabolic inflammation and the secondary mitochondrial defect that is created from that metabolic inflammation. So it causes a cascade of effects mm. that destroy the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. And then there's the other things that unfortunately autistic kids end up with, which is they're typically not in the sun. They're typically stuck inside and they don't get any infrared light exposure you filter out 99% of all the infrared light that's supposed to be coming through that you filtered out with the windows that we have now. The average exposure of infrared light is down by over 97% for most Americans. Wow. And you have to have infrared light to produce intramitochondrial melatonin, which is the most potent antioxidant inside the mitochondria, which is different than the melatonin produced in your brain, which is a circadian rhythm melatonin. That's only 5%. 95% of melatonin is intramitochondrial. Wow. It's only produced in the presence of red light, which unfortunately autistic kids don't get. Yeah. It's a whole host of things. And unfortunately, if you're severely inflamed, your reactive oxidase system doesn't work well, your pain is going to be a lot worse. The pain is just a signal that tells your body something terrible has happened. And it's usually a combination of factors. So you talked about a lot of things like omega acids and sunlight, which produces vitamin D. Do you recommend supplementation? Yeah. So sunlight has two components. Sunlight UVB assists with vitamin D production and conversion. And that's absolutely necessary because vitamin D is really a hormone. 
it's not just a vitamin. Vitamin D is a hormone. And people don't recognize that you have to have this hormonal vitamin D. In the spectrum toward the gamma rays, which is where UVB is, right before you get to gamma rays, that's where UVB is. That is a vitamin D issue. At the other end of the spectrum, where infrared is, which is heat, basically, it's the sensation of heat, it's the red light, that is a whole different spectrum. And so that you really can't supplement. You're not going to be able to give somebody enough melatonin without screwing up their endocrine system. And we have kids now getting melatonin toxicity. And the amount of melatonin that you would have to give is ridiculous to get enough to get into their mitochondria. What you need to do is you need to give them infrared light. You need to get them in the sun. That's the only way to effectively do it. Because they've only studied melatonin from a sleep study up to about the equivalent of one milligram. And most kids, most adults are taking five to 10 milligrams. Those have never been studied. Every time I ask people, how much melatonin are you taking? Oh, not much. 10 milligrams. I'm yeah, like, oh my gosh. I can't believe they even sell these products. It's just insane. Yeah, it's ridiculous. And it's never been studied. It, it's probably one of the most dangerous things you can buy. And it completely destroys your endocrine system. What do you think about low dose supplementation like the one milligrams out there? I think that's fine, but within the context of other things. So the reason why people need melatonin is because of an anxiety issue. They're not falling asleep because they have shitty sleep hormones and they, they have shitty sleep hygiene. They don't go into bed with a plan of going to sleep. What they do is they watch TV till the end of the night and then they somehow think that if they're tired enough and then typically they've fallen out of their sleep window, they end up collapsing and trying to sleep and their brain thinks that it's already been dreaming because everything that it intercalates from the television, it takes it in as a visual dream. It doesn't know that it hasn't been dreaming. So the brain's not ready to go to sleep. And it's intercalated all of these catastrophic things that people are watching on television and on their phone. And it's integrating it into a very complicated, chaotic state. That's crazy. And so uh, we recommend within the context of good sleep hygiene, a combination of things. Certainly melatonin works, but I think what works even better is to reduce their anxiety. Anxiety is gut driven. So it's a GABA issue. It's a GABA aminobutyric acid. So I usually will supplement people with GABA. How much? Um, you know, I use a compound and I have no relationship to this. There's a compound called Doc Parsley's. It's dosed by body weight. So it, there's different packages for different sizes. It's basically pour a package in, hot water, slam it 30 minutes. It has a very tiny dose of melatonin, but the main component is GABA. And what it does is it refeeds your gut bacteria. It works immediately because the GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. And over time, over a couple of weeks, you preferentially start to grow gut bacteria that consume GABA and which then causes the growth of gut bacteria that produce GABA. Yeah, the connection between GABA and gut health, I find is just fascinating. Yeah, that's where the majority of anxiety is. That Because once you get your heart rate variability and your vagus nerve to function correctly, two thirds of your anxiety goes away. I do that a lot with our PTSD patients. I do that with a lot of our anxiety patients. We focus in on gut health and we focus in on getting them off their benzodiazepines because we don't find that benzos have a great value and we try to wean them off. They're a Band-Aid at best. Yeah. They just cause so many problems down the line. Yeah. So there's a book by Chris Palmer, Brain Energy. He and I speak on the same stages and it's a great book and it goes through mitochondrial health specifically from a psychiatric standpoint. Amazing, amazing book. 
he's not doing novel research. What he's doing is he's collecting the existing information and putting it into a readily usable format for both clinicians and for patients. So it's intelligible at a regular level, and yet it has the reference information for a physician. And so I, I like that book. I, a lot of my patients, we recommend it to. So, I mean, I think supplementing works. I think you have to be very careful the context of supplementation. I think some people think if a little bit works, then a lot must work a lot better. And that's not the case. That's what's happened with melatonin. Well, I also think that people, especially in America, we want the quick fix, right? Like we don't want to take our kids out in the sunshine. We just want to give them a pill. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we have a high usage of antibiotics for viral infections. They're antibiotics, they're antibacterial agents. And yet we use them for viral infections. That doesn't make any sense. Unless you've got a super infection, you should let the virus run its course and do what it has to do and let the temperature go up, which kills off the virus load, um, and then do everything else you can. So it sounds like maintaining physical health in a holistic fashion is really key in controlling pain for autistic people. For everyone, but specifically for autistic kids, because we've controlled their diet. I mean, so I work with prison populations as well. I work on, I'm on the board for Exoneration Nation. It's very similar. You're controlling what they're eating. You're controlling their behavior. You're controlling everything that they're doing. And the second you cut the vegetable oil out of the prison, their in-prison violence goes down. What? The second you get rid of, yeah. So this, because vegetable oils cause neuroinflammation. Oh, so if crazy. you get rid of the vegetable oil, you get rid of the carbohydrate, the in-prison violence goes down. Wow. It's the same thing as looking at the urban communities that I work in. You look at the little minority kids and you look at the little Caucasian kids in the county and they're both bubbly. They're all amazing. Everybody's happy and they're all one and two years old and their intelligence is exactly the same and their performance is exactly the same. You get out to seven or eight years of age, though, things have changed and the little white kids in the county and, and the black kids in the county as well. I mean, it's not based on race. It just happens to be what I see. The kids in the county who have access to good food and to challenging environments do really well. But the kids in the city, because of gun violence, are stuck in their houses and have to shop at the local convenience store to get their food, which is all fried. And they don't have access to fresh food. Right. These are called food deserts. Yeah. Well, we control that population with food stamps and we force them to eat a particular kind of food, which is only available in their environment. So it's, again, it's a controlled issue. It's, it's a prison population. It happens in every controlled population. I had the same experience. I work with Aborigines off the north coast of Australia. I've lived with them for a while and I was their doc. And there was one island that didn't get the routine food drops. And there was another island that got the routine food drops. And the other island that got the routine food drops and the alcohol, um, they got vegetable oil. And they had early cognitive decline. And I was also the alcohol too. Wow. But both islands would make their own alcohol. So they, one island had easier access. But the island that didn't get the vegetable oil and the refined sugars, they were amazing. They looked totally different. A 50-year-old, a 6-year-old looked like they were 30. Wow. They had gigantic jaws, they had big teeth, and they were happy. And the other population was sallow, and, and they had sarcopenic wasting, and they lost their zygoma, and they lost their muscle mass, and they were frail, and they had early cognitive decline. And so it was very, very apparent, just looking at that, just very similar genetic population, 
but just a few miles apart, one would get a drop of food and the other one wouldn't. It is so interesting. I think, you know, even in my own family, like my parents both were diabetic and obese. And I always wondered, like, what is it? Why am I not afflicted like that? But I became a nurse early on and I became very interested in holistic health and nutrition and all of that. And so it's fascinating that we're all living in the same world and yet the choices we make age us at totally different rates with the same genetics. Yeah, and that's the problem. It's more phenotypic change, but then it causes an epigenetic change. Yeah. Um, you know, and the epigenetic change happens pretty quickly. I mean, if you traumatize a child, then their progeny is going to have an epigenetic change. And it's going to spread for two or three generations before it gets reversed because the methylation is pretty significant. That is insane. Don't you find that crazy? Yeah. So I know you're an interventional pain management guy. So assuming somebody's going to clean up the diet, they're going to get some sunshine, they may take some carefully selected supplements. Are there any interventional strategies that work particularly well for autistic people? Yeah, it's the same thing as working with non-autistic adults, because usually they start to get their pain symptoms of severity post-adolescence. I don't see that many very, very young children with pain issues. It's as they become separated from the uterus, it starts to get worse. And so six, seven, eight, nine, they start to have more difficulties. But usually they're pretty challenged in school and there are rewards for them outside of food. So they are still hedonically driven by education and other rewards. And they're of the size, they're, you know, they're, they're not big. And so they're of the size that you can still control their food intake to some degree. It's when they get bigger when they become near adult, it becomes more and more of a problem, especially when they start to form a lot of hormones. And that hormone intercalation into their brain becomes a bigger and bigger issue. And that's when you start to see the cardiovascular disease. That's when you see the hypertension. You start to see the prediabetes and diabetes. It's when you get there that their pain is out of control. So then they have the same issues. They destroy their joints. They bulge out discs in their back. They have SI joint dysfunction. They have gait intalgia. They have a whole host of things that just like everyone else, but they are prematurely aging. They're aging at about 50% faster than a regular person. And they end up much more premature aging as in terms of their pain symptoms. They get a lot worse. Simply because of their lifestyle? Primarily because of their lifestyle, but also remember that oxytocin. That oxytocin has a significant impact on pain. Oxytocin itself is an independent actor in pain. It's a bonding hormone, but it has some other effects and it does affect the perception of pain. And the more situational loneliness you have, which is the primary driver of addiction in adults, loneliness is the primary driver of addiction in adults, the more situational loneliness you have because you don't have enough oxytocin, the more amplification you're gonna have of pain. And as these kids get older, that oxytocin deprivation makes it a lot worse. And they're even more lonely as they get older. Oh my gosh. And it's very, very profound. And that's when this gets a lot worse. So it's not when they're kids, it's when they, one, are at the same time losing all of their siblings, they're losing all of their parents, they're losing, you know, they become the emancipated adult that's now under Medicaid and is potentially looking at living in a home long-term for management. And all of a sudden they've been fed 
all of this terrible food and the only focus they have that they're hedonically driven is to eat that food. And now they don't have any oxytocin and now they're lonely. And now the only thing that gives them a reward is that food. And so basically you've created an addict and, wow. and now at the same time, you've degenerated all their joints. It's a pretty bad cycle. Wow. That's what we try to intercede with. And there's ways to work on their mitochondrial health, which is what we predominantly do. And they're very simple things that you can do that, that work pretty well. Mm-hmm. Like what? Give us some few simple steps to wrap up because parents are dying to know. So the simplest things. I mean, recognize that this is a mitochondrial phenomenon. And so I'm going to give some general things. And this by no means is all inclusive. And this is not a prescription. We're, we're not prescribing anything here. But I, I'm within the spectrum of, of what we have conversations about. Certainly omega-6 fatty acids are bad for most kids. So I supplement with omega-3, usually use krill oil with an astaxanthin, which is a terpene. The terpene itself causes pain relief and the omega-3 changes the omega-6 to 3 fatty acid ratio. So I want to get their omega-3s correct. Certainly, I want to get rid of their carbohydrates. Certainly, I want to give them vitamin D. Certainly, I want to get them in the sun to improve their intramitochondrial melatonin. Certainly, I want to improve their sleep capacity without giving them a benzo. And I want to use something like Doc Parsley's or some other GABA-containing substance. Certainly, I want to avoid glutamate at all cost. I want them not to eat Chinese food. I don't want them to go out and get a bunch of glutamate that, you know, glutamate was originally designed to hide the flavor of rancidity. It was designed so that people could serve rancid meat and add glutamate to it so we couldn't tell that it was rancid. And it's a excitatory neurotoxic transmitter that causes severe agitation. So I want to avoid that. I want to increase anything that would increase the residual oxytocin that the, the, the child has or that your adult has. So that would be bonding activities with animals. That would be anything that gives them a appropriate age-specific comfort and gets them to that level. And then you start looking at the mitochondrial things. So phosphocreatinine is something that's worthwhile. Five grams of creatine per day replaces most of the creatine deficiency. I use things like ketones. I do ketone supplementation, especially in my Alzheimer's and in my cognitively impaired patients who have type 2 or who have type 3 diabetes, which is diabetes of the brain. I use ketone supplementation. Methylene blue works Hmm. because it rescues your reactive oxidase synthetase system. Anything that I can do to tweak the mitochondria, I'll do. And so it, it depends on that individual patient. You know, methylene blue is a super, super cheap phenomenon. And then as in terms of procedures, I mean, I go through and try to figure out where their symptoms are. Some of the symptoms can be simply because it's like when I was practicing in the emergency room, looking at a two-year-old, wondering why they didn't move their right arm. I'd be wondering, did they fracture their right arm? And so a lot of times you have to do some diagnostic workup to figure out why. And you'll end up doing an x-ray and you'll find out, oh, hold on, this, this elbow is completely fused because they haven't been using it and it's completely destroyed. A lot of them, as they get fatty liver, start to leach material out of their liver. The gamma glutamyl transferase goes up. They end up with fatty liver and they end up having a positive ANA or positive rheumatoid factor. I see a lot of positive gluten testing uh, in these patients. So, you know, we avoid things like bread products. And I know this sounds crazy, but more and more I've pushed some of them to do a trial of being straight carnivore for four to 12 weeks. 
and it works. I have heard about that, yeah. I mean, it, it is not going to reverse autism, but it is going to improve their brains and make them more functional. And then at the same time, you have to give kids something to do. You have to intellectually challenge them. And there has to be a reward in it. There has to be a gamification. And so that's the critical element. This goes back to the study on the rats, on the rat model. So are you familiar with the Vietnam War and what we thought was going to happen when the vets came back? No. This is back when Nixon was in charge. They thought that when we repatriated Americans, they knew that the use of heroin was high in the battlefield. And they thought that when they repatriated the soldiers, they would bring their addiction back. And this was on the basis of a rat study that they had done. In one side of the rat cage, they gave the rat water. And on the other side of the rat cage, they gave the rat morphine. And they allowed the rat to drink as much as they wanted. The rats ran over, drank the water, tried the morphine, loved the morphine, stayed over there, and drank so much morphine that they died. So the basis of addiction medicine was born, that given the opportunity, humans or rats will drink as much morphine as they can and they will die. So we had these narcotic addicted humans that were part of the armed forces in a controlled environment, and a large portion of them were doing heroin. They were doing hashish and heroin and things of that nature. And we thought, well, these people are going to come back and they're going to be walking zombies on our streets. And it's going to be terrible. And that was one of the reasons why there was a delay in repatriation. But they came back and the majority of them weren't heroin addicts. The heroin addiction rate was very similar. It was a couple of percentage points. It was 30, 40% over there. Wow. But here it was like a couple of percentage points that went right back to normal. And so the question was, why? So they redid the rat study. And this time what they did was they put the rats in a cage. And on one side, they put water. On the other side, they put morphine. But in the middle, they put toys and mazes and other rats to play with. None of those rats got addicted because they had friends to play with. Wow. Because it was intellectually challenging. They didn't want the morphine. They were just so wow. lonely. They didn't know what else to do. And so they, they put themselves out of their own heads oh. to eventually die from morphine intoxication. And that's the same thing with autistic kids. Their intoxication is food and it happens to be processed addictive food. So that's my, that's the model that I live in. Yeah. Um, it's so sad to see what happens to autistic adults now as sort of this new generation that we, you know, I mean, I think this whole Asperger's thing was not even considered much until the nineties. And we're seeing now these kids become adults and it's, it's just pretty heartbreaking because I think before they were kind of mixed in and nobody identified them. But now we see like the trends, the unemployment, the isolation, the depression, the suicide. It's its just heartbreaking. Yeah. I mean, so here's the thing. It's not like they're functioning at a six-month-old level. They're functioning six to 12-year-old level. And so they have the cognitive capacity to do all of the things that they want to do, but they don't have enough to be independent because we've created a potentially dangerous world. It's not because we've intentionally done it, but that's just the way the world is. We have to fundamentally understand that, which is the other conversation that you and I had, which is what do you do when the child becomes an adult and how do you manage that? And those are the issues that I also deal with. 
Yeah. So we're going to have another episode and we're going to talk about all that stuff. If people are hearing this and they want to learn more about you or find information about your practice, how do they do that? Go through our website, www.reversediabetes.md. I've got like seven or eight different websites, but that one I think speaks specifically to some of the issues with protocols. There's another one that is called painmd.tv, www.painmd.tv, that probably has a ton of information. But the best thing to do is just reach out to me. I mean, through my LinkedIn, I answer every single conversation that I ever have. If, If somebody reaches out to me and has a question, I answer. It's a field that it bothers me that people have the wrong model. And if you don't understand the model of the actual disease process, then you completely miss the treatment. It's very analogous to our model with Alzheimer's. I mean, I think that we're missing our Alzheimer's model. And that's why we're going after tau protein when that may not be the right model of care. And so understanding that model is really important. And so I answer every single interaction. That's amazing. You're you're a pretty awesome human, I have to say, Dr. Pye. Thank you. I appreciate it. 